Welcome to the Keeping the Nostalgia Alive show. I am your host, Billy Powell. Today I have the extreme pleasure of having a 10-year Major League Baseball pitcher, a New York Yankee, and the all-time lowest ERA pitcher at the historic Yankee Stadium, South Paul Fritsch. Fritz Peterson. Uh, Fritz, thank you so much for spending some of your time. I know you got a busy schedule, but uh, thank you for spending some of your time to help help us keep the nostalgia alive. Oh, I love nostalgia, Billy. It's uh, I've been getting into it more and more on this Facebook thing that I was told if I ever started doing that, I'd have a hard time quitting, and I do. Uh, I love it. <laughs> yeah, no, I've seen some fantastic posts, and I learn new stuff every day when you're uh, posting some of that stuff. It's, and I love your birthday wishes. Um, Fritz, tell us, was baseball the first sport that you picked up when you were little, or was there other sports involved? Yes, really it was. Uh, my dad was a, a really good baseball player, not in the minor leagues, but in uh, amateur baseball, and he was uh, a real good third baseman. In fact, he used to say, uh, until Brooks Robinson came around, he thought he would he was the best one ever. But he, he seeded the Brooks. But he was in baseball, so he wanted a ball player son, and I was there... And he started pitching raisins to me in our little living room in our apartment in Chicago in front of the TV set. And that's how I started. <laughs> and, and, and at that point in time, what baseball players did you look up to once you started getting into the game? Or it, was there anybody that you, you really liked at that time? Yes. Uh, my dad was a White Sox fan, so naturally I was too. So along with that came not liking the Cubs. And when I finally got up to the Yankees, I automatically hated the Mets. So that went a long way. But on, on the uh, White Sox, I, there was a pitcher by the name of Billy Pierce who was left-handed, just died a couple weeks ago. But he was a fireballer, left-hander, and uh, he wore number 19. And I vowed if I ever got to a big league team or high up somewhere, I'd, I'd like to wear number 19, which eventually happened. But uh, Billy and my White Sox always came in second to the Yankees. And uh, when I was looking around for a team to sign after my college year of 1963, the Yankees offered me the most money, and the White Sox didn't offer me anything. So I said, okay. Let's go Yankees. <laughs> uh, tell us about your uh, your high school career and um, uh, what was was your high school known for baseball? No, it wasn't, Billy. Uh, that, I, I was from a small suburb of Chicago called Arlington Heights, Illinois. Uh, they don't even have a high school there by that name anymore. They combined a couple of towns and made it into Prospect high school but at the time it was just a regular suburban baseball team uh, playing baseball in the bad weather and blah 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 and I my freshman coach in in high school said at the baseball banquet at the end of that year that I had uh, here's Fred Peterson he called me he said he got three pitches slow slower and damn slow <laughs> and I did <laughs> but that's what I worked off of Bill I eventually came off of that and put some speed behind it and I knew where it was going and oddly enough I did end up uh, leading the league in the lowest number of walks per nine innings pitched five years in a row uh, so once you graduated from I mean did you got did your high school have baseball success while you were there Yes, a little bit. Uh, we won the championship my senior year, and I got to be all-conference, and that was the first time that I was ever anything in any sport. And my dad had always managed the teams I played on, so I never even knew if I was good enough to play. Uh, but that year, the uh, senior year in high school, that we came in first place, and then my coach from Arlington High School by the name of Bob Baker took me up to Northern Illinois University because he thought it would be a natural 
place for me to play, being uh, pretty close to where we lived. So he took me up there to a coach by the name of Dr. Daryl Black. And Dr. Black uh, was very nice, seemed very intelligent, like college people you'd think would be. Uh, so he was my first coach in college, and I thought I was going to be one of the best players on the team because I was in high school. And I got there my first year, I didn't make the team. Uh, we only had a varsity team at Northern Illinois University, and I didn't make it. And I was pretty uh, disappointed with that and didn't even know if I should quit or not. Uh, I thought of asking them if I could be the team manager, you know, and bring equipment up and uh, get the bats ready in the rack and all that, but I didn't do that. And eventually made that team and got a, a uniform and started my college career. Uh, the second year in college, uh, I did end up being a starting pitcher right from the get-go, and I lost like six games all in the last inning. And uh, my junior year, which turned out to be my last year in college, uh, turned out to be a real barn burner. And I was all everything and MVP on the team, and that was the time that I thought I was going to be a ball player. So when did uh, at all in your first couple of years there at Northern Illinois? But, but let's go back a little bit. Did you have the opportunity okay. to play? Ba- did you have the opportunity to play baseball someplace else that you instead of Northern Illinois? Um, no, I didn't. Uh, I just worked during the summers there at uh, around at a gas station at a lake uh, called Crystal Lake, where we moved at the time, and I didn't really pay, uh, play. And it wasn't until the third year that I really got confidence in myself at Northern Illinois University, and I had scouts following me, me there, and uh, uh, they offered me a contract, and, they, and Kansas City wanted to fly me down, and did fly me to Kansas City, uh, which was the uh, Kansas City A's at the time, and they gave me a nice workout down there, but the Yankees decided that they wanted me, and by the time I listened to the Yankee scouts, uh, I didn't want to sign with anybody else, because they had me convinced that if I were with the Yankees and a left-handed pitcher, I'd have that great stadium to pitch in, and I'd have a World Series share almost every year. And I thought that sounded really good. So I did, and I did. <laughs> I didn't get in any World Series. <laughs> I forgot to get even in, even one inning in, in any postseason play. Um, now, what was your thought process when you and, – and who discovered you or signed you to the Yankees? Uh Two scouts, uh, Art Stewart and Lou McGuala, that scouted the, in the Midwest for the Yankees. And uh, they were real professional guys. I mean, they, they told me that they'd be down to see me if I signed a minor league contract, which I did, and they weren't. <laughs> I should have known something was up by then. Uh, and then I eventually did get on the Yankees two and a half years later. And my first year with the Yankees, we came in last place for the first time in the history of the New York Yankees, having been called the New York Yankees since 1913. So that was quite an awakening, but I was still thrilled to be in the big leagues and with the Yankees. Uh, what was it like? At, what was it like in the minors and working yourself up to the Yankees? Well, that's an interesting question too, uh, because as I mentioned before, I thought I was pretty good in high school, and then I didn't make the the uh, college team my first year. I thought I was really good when I signed with the Yankees and went down to my first minor league camp, minor league season in Harlan, Kentucky, which was in the rookie league. And again, I thought I was going to be the biggest thing down there. I I took a cab from the airplane. Uh, We took a little puddle jumper over to meet them in somewhere in Tennessee. 
and I took a cab to the hotel we were staying at, and I called my manager's room, whose name was Mr. Gary Blaylock, and I said, Mr. Blaylock, I'm here. And he said, well, what's your name? And I said, uh, Fritz Peterson. He says, what do you play? What position? <laughs> I knew I was in trouble already, Billy. And I said, I'm a pitcher, and here we go again. So here we went again, and uh, I was with a bunch of kids from California and Texas and kids that could really throw the ball hard. And uh, I was a little older than them and in college after my third year already in college. So I tried to throw like they did, too, and wasn't finding success at that. So I went back to what I could do, and I, I threw the spots, uh, which I always could do and, and still could then, and ended up just with a 4-3 and three record in Harlan, Kentucky, which I had told my friends back uh, a month ago or so. I, I told them I was only 4-3 and three already when I was really 2-3. and three. And thank goodness I ended up four and three, or they would have thought I didn't know how to add anymore. <laughs> what kind of players, what other uh, ball players were you um, moving up in the minors with? Were there any stars that you uh, um, uh, played along with or that eventually made it to the major leagues? Well, Roy White was one. Bobby Mercer was another. I didn't play with Thurman Munson. Uh, a guy by the name of Dave McDonald was one. And uh, Jerry Kenny, um, although he turned out to be our third baseman and wasn't much of a big leaguer, but nice guy. But uh, that was a sign of our times then. We had something as the writers look back on our, our little time frame in baseball, and they ended up calling it the Horace Clark years because we weren't good. We didn't have a good defense. We didn't have a good offense. We had decent pitching with Stottlemyre, myself, Stan Bonson, Steve Klein, Doc Medich, um, and later Sparky Lyle as a reliever. So we had good pitching, but we just never had enough to, to stand up with the big boys in, the, in my major league career. Um, in your major league career, when you got that first start in 66, um, and, and you're at Yankee Stadium, and you're getting ready to make your first start at Yankee Stadium. I, 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 what was your feeling like? Was it? Were you kind of overwhelmed a little bit? Were you emotional? Billy, um, I we played three games. We opened the season with three games at Yankee Stadium, and then I was the fourth starter. And we went to Baltimore uh, for that game because it was their opening day in Baltimore, so it was on the road. But it still was really scary. I had seen the first three games in Yankee Stadium, and it was just enormous, but we lost all three of them. So when we went to Baltimore, I got it was my turn to pitch. And I got out there. Uh, I, I went to warm up, and then I started coming into the ball game, and I looked around, and there was like 38,000 people there. And I think the most people, most fans I ever threw in front of were about 4,000 in the minor league uh, <laughs> by then. So... <laughs> I, I learned not to look at the people in the stands. I just walked right out and looked towards the mound and went out there. Picked up the ball, warmed up, uh, kind of didn't know where I was because it was just so thrilling realizing that in a matter of moments I was going to be a big league pitcher no matter what I did, even if it was just one pitch. So uh, I threw that pitch. Uh, it, it was to a, a, uh, an old idol I had, uh, Louis Aparicio, who was on the White, uh, White Sox when I was a kid. And he was the first batter I faced, and would you believe it, my first pitch, he hit a base hit, and eventually scored. So uh, all the way from ground zero again, I start, but I eventually uh, got into the ninth inning in that game. Uh, we were winning 3-1. to one. Uh, Frank Robinson was up with, uh, with two outs, and I just didn't want to walk him 
because I had they had a left-hander by the name of Boog Powell coming up next, and I thought I could do okay against Boog. So I just uh, threw some strikes to Frank, and he hit one out in Memorial Stadium there in Baltimore, which was his first home run in the American League. And he ended up being the MVP in, in that uh, uh, that year in the American League, as well as the Orioles winning the World Series that year. So uh, I, uh, I threw the pitch. He hit it out of the ballpark. Boog Powell comes up. And I really wasn't nervous yet because I I, I know, knew how to do my job. So I, I got him up, got him uh, 0-2, and threw him a slider outside. And he pulled it to first base, and I ran over to cover the base. Uh, Joe Pepitone threw it to me, and that was the ball game. And we had won. And, and I thought, like in, in movies, they would carry me off on their backs <laughs> uh, because the Yankees finally won one, and nobody said anything. Uh, they they go into the, We go into the clubhouse. And uh, the writers are all there real fast because they never had seen me pitch before. And uh, in my very first in the ba- inning, to back up for a little on that story, I, I was it was the first inning, and after Louis Aparicio got that first hit, I just wanted to make sure I threw perfect pitches, so I took my time out there. And Mickey Mantle was yelling something in, in center field, which I didn't hear. And Bobby Richardson came out to ask me, he said, do you hear Mickey yelling at you back there? And I said, no, I don't, Bobby. He, he said he is, and he's telling you to hurry up your pitches. So, you know, having come from Mickey Mantle, I, I started hurrying up in between pitches, and it turned out great. And when we got in the uh, clubhouse and we had won that game, the writers were right at my uh, spot there in the, in the clubhouse. And they said, well, why do you pitch so fast? And I said, well, I want to hurry up and see who wins. And, and that was true. <laughs> but, it, but it was really because of Mickey, because I didn't want to do something, you know, I wanted to do exactly what he said. So I owe that to Mickey, and, and my games averaged right around two hours, opposed to what the normal game was, which was about three hours. And I really did want to see who won, and I really didn't want to walk anybody. And that's kind of how I would call my pitching career, just like that. No walks and fast games. <laughs> what was it like of playing with a Mickey Mantle? And, um, you know, was there a lot of egos on the team? Was there, uh, is that something you guys no. had to tiptoe around? No. Believe it or not, it wasn't at all. Uh, back in in my first day in spring training, Mickey Mantle had, uh, worked his way over to my locker, and because he knew we were all scared to death of him, uh, and he he stuck his hand out. He said, "Hi, Fritz. I'm Mickey Mantle." Like I didn't know, you know, that there was God <laughs> standing there. And I said, "Oh, hi, Mr. Mary." He said, "No, it's Mickey." Uh, he said, "Where are you from?" I said, I'm, "I'm from Crystal Lake, Illinois." And blah blah blah, and that's just the kind of guy he was. And, and there were no egos on that team, believe it or not. No, not. We had some characters like Joe Pepitone, but it was no ego because Joe was being watched by Mickey Mantle and the boys above him. And uh, it was just a team that was out there to win. And unfortunately, we didn't have the talent to do it anymore. What was Yankee Stadium like? I mean, you know, did, did you did you take it did you take it in, or did was did it go by so fast that you really didn't take it in? Did you think about of all the memories that had been made there before you got there? Yeah, yes, I did take it in. Uh, in fact, the night we got to uh, the ballpark after spring training broke and we flew up to up north, 
Dooley Womack and I, another rookie who was a relief pitcher, and I took a walk out to monu- the monuments in center field because we just had never seen it in person before. We saw it on TV, of course, but we walked out there, and it seemed like we walked for an hour to get out there, and we looked back in, and it just looked so huge, and we remember everything that happened there actually since from 1923 on. And, uh, in fact, I got to pitch the last game in, in the house that Ruth built on uh, September 30th of 1973. What was were you? Uh, you of course, you uh, you were, you went through the whole season with Roger Maris chasing the record. Is that correct? No, I, I wasn't there then. I was there in Roger's first year. Last year was my first year, and the the big year for him was 1961. And I wasn't even in pro ball yet. I just had to watch. I, I actually saw a couple games at Comiskey Park because uh, I was uh, just in college at the time, just to see the Yankees play. And little did I know I'd be on that team five years later. Where were some of your favorite ballparks to pitch? Uh, Anaheim, for one. Uh, first of all, Yankee Stadium, because that had the, the well, long left center field. I, I could just let them tee off there, and we guys we had guys that could run it down. But if I had to join, uh, pick another ballpark, it would be the California Angels in Anaheim because I had never been out to California. I never even had been out to New York until that first trip from spring training. And to get out to California, and that was the, happened to be the series that Johnny Keene, the, the manager of the Yankees at that time, got fired, and Ralph Howe took his place. Uh, and that was that series on California, and I was the pitcher that night. And it, it just seemed like the pressure was all off because Ralph Houck was back. All of my teammates had played with for Ralph before in the early 60s. And it was just a fun game, and we beat the tire out of him. Maybe to, to, for us to beat the tire out of somebody, we got three runs. and But it was like three to one. And uh, it was like the guys were all back to normal again. And, it, and from that moment on, I just love to get to California and pitch because of that feeling. And we got free tickets to Disney World or Disneyland, I guess it was called at that time. And they had a thing worked out with Disney Disneyland where some of their employees could come to games for free. And we'd always get passes to go uh, to Disneyland from them. So just being a kid again, walking over to Disneyland and, and eating my first you know, patty melt at Denny's out there, I just it was, it was just glorious. <laughs> Where did your nickname Fritz come from? Uh, my my grandpa's name was Fred. My dad's name was Fred, and they named me Fred. But my mom made a deal with my dad and, and grandpa that they'd call me Fritz because there were too many Freds in the family. And Fritz is a nickname, a uh, German nickname for Fred anyway. So I became a Fritz. Fritz, what was, you know, we all hear everything that happens because of social media today, but what were contract negotiations like back when you played? I, but you signed for what they gave you, basically. Uh, the first year I signed the minimum contract because I was I was just a rookie and, and I, they didn't even expect me to win uh, to make the team. That was seven thousand dollars, and then they had a uh, an incentive clause in contracts during those times. If you stayed with the ball club for ninety days straight, you would get an additional seventy five hundred dollars. 
So in reality, I ended up making $14,500 there, and it seemed like a million. And and I, I signed for 9000 which again seemed like a million to me. Uh, so it, it was a, a fun trip. The next year, I, I got, I think, a $7,000 raise because I was the leading pitcher on the team that year with a record of 12 and 11. Uh, so they, they wanted to give me something, but it, it ended up being a $7,000 raise, and, and we went from there. What was travel like back then, and do you have any funny stories that you can share about traveling with the team? You mean the uh, with the big big team? Of course. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, um, uh, This I, I don't know how funny this is, but I appreciated those flights so much. I thought the airline uh, meals were exquisite, <laughs> and uh, I would I would eat like two of those, and then not go out to eat when we got to the the town we were going to. But everybody else they they left that and just laughed at it. But I was out there munching it and thinking I was in the in the shaperie. <laughs> <laughs> in, in nineteen seventy, you won you won twenty games. You uh, were um, in the All-Star Game. Can you tell everybody about the experience of being in the All-Star Game? And I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, it was at Riverfront Stadium that year. It was. It was. And it was a thrill, uh, of course. And I found out a, a couple of days early uh, from a friend of mine who ended up being the um, uh, public relations man, Marty Appel, uh, that he, he pulled me aside one day. Uh, before they announced the, the all-star teams and he said Fritz he said you made the team I said are you kidding and uh, I thanked him and Mel Saddlemayer also made the team that year and Roy White but I can remember what a thrill that was thinking that I would be next to all these guys all the stars on all their teams and we'd be playing the National League as one team uh, trying to beat that other bad league and uh, it, it was a thrill to even be invited and then to get there and, and see the festivities was just beautiful. And, and uh, to see all the attention paid to all these players. Cause the Yankees of old used to get all that attention that, that the All-Star teams did. But now that we had started losing and we weren't really uh, a ton at the time, the All-Star team exemplified what it was like for the old Yankees. And uh, it was exciting. Um, tell us about... Your next team after the Yankees, what happened? Did something deteriorate from the Yankees and why you were traded or moved along? Uh, you want me to, to back up one second and tell you what it felt to be out there on the mound being called in to oh, that yes, all-star please. game? Oh, yes, please. Because that, that, that I, I'm trying to, to relive that, and maybe if I do it on your show here, I can help get rid of it. Okay, <laughs> yes, please. Uh, what, what it, uh, Earl Weaver was the manager at the time. And he wanted to, to stop the National League. We had, uh, uh, the American League had lost five in a row, I think. So it was the ninth inning, and Catfish Hunter was pitching out there, and he got two guys on base. And uh, Earl Weaver goes to me out in the bullpen, calls for me to come in, and, and this was the first game that was audible for managers. They had a microphone on him, and uh, he called me in. Uh, to, to replace Catfish, believe that or not. That's a hard one to dig right there. So uh, he leaves. Willie McCovey comes up as the first hitter I'm to face with men on first and second. And uh, I wasn't afraid yet. Uh, I didn't know that he was the MVP of the, of the All-Star game uh, the year before. But I, I got him 0-2. 
and I threw a, a third slider, sidearm slider away, but didn't get it away enough. And Willie grounded a uh, ground ball just past Davy Johnson at second. That ended up scoring the runner from first base and sending the runner, I mean, from second base and sending the runner from first to third. So a right-handed hitter was coming up, uh, Roberto Clemente, and he, he wasn't a bad hitter. So <laughs> Earl brought uh, Mal Stottlemyre in to face him because Mal's a good sinker ball pitcher. And uh, if we could have gotten uh, that that double play, we would have won, uh, won the game. But Mal uh, threw a nice fastball, and Clemente, Clemente hit it for a fly ball left center in the score to score a run. And that was the run that caused us to go into extra innings in which Ray Fossey got run over by Pete Rose at home plate for them to win in the bottom of the 12th inning. But the reason I, I say that, Billy, is because little things make such a big difference. And if I just would have yanked it a little bit, another inch away from him, I could have struck him out or possibly got into a, a ground ball double play, and, and the ball game would have been over. But it's just those little things in life that make a big difference. And I've tried, I've relived that one 10,001 now times with this one on your on your show. But it just doesn't seem to go away. I can't do it over. You know, you know what's funny though too is is I can just imagine I'm, me being in your shoes and just the talent that was on the National League and the American League. And you're in Riverfront Stadium, one of my favorite stadiums that I got to go to several times as a wow. child. And, you know, it, uh, that, that had to be amazing. Yeah, it, it was, no doubt. And before I knew I was out there, I was gone. And then uh, we all stayed out there and watched the game. And then uh, poor Ray gets it at home plate from Pete Rose, which I thought was a dirty play. But when I saw it over and over again, Pete, uh, Pete had no choice because Ray was standing in the baseline right in the middle without the ball. So, sorry, Pete. Uh, any uh, any commentary on Pete Rose, by the way? Uh, on the Hall of Fame thing? Yep. Yeah, you know what? He's a liar. I hate to say that. Uh, yeah. And I suppose everybody tells their little white lies, but he just said no so many times and then finally admitted it. I, I just, uh, I don't know. Uh, Pete, I knew Pete kind of a talk about egos that's mr ego and i could care less if he makes it or not now when when, when you guys were at the all-star game did any of you hang out did was there was did you hang out with ball players during the off season during the season i mean was there a camaraderie there yeah there, there was especially during the season uh, after the seasons were over uh everybody go their own way but during the season we had a bunch of guys that especially like on road trips, we'd uh, especially if we were, had a, had a day off somewhere along the line, we'd I'd gather uh, guys together and we'd have like uh, we called ourselves the nursery, uh, like little nursery school kids, and we'd go places and go fishing or motor uh, motorcycling or uh, speedboat racing like that, and it, it was a we all looked forward to it. Thurman Munson was part of it, uh, Sparky. Steve Klein, myself, Mel, uh, it, it was a blast. I was the traveling secretary for that group. Can you tell us a little bit about Thurman Munson and what kind of a person he was? Oh, yeah. Uh, Thurman, the, the day he got brought up in 1969, we could tell there was something different about him. It's like he deserved to be there already. Not, not cocky, smart aleck stuff, but he was just, 
he was he was so I, I guess you call it uh, he he was so able to do everything we did already, and he he was just a kid. And uh, Mel and I loved pitching to him because he he looked like he knew what he was doing. You know, he, what what he'd call, we'd throw, and he had it right from the beginning. And uh, he was a gamer, uh, and so was Bobby Mercer. Uh, he would take a, a, a second baseman out at, at second base on a double play, or run over a catcher at home plate. And not all of our guys were like that at the time. Uh, but Thurman was an old-fashioned player like the, the guys in the 50s and Moose Cowrens and Hank Bowers and Joe DiMaggio's and Mickey Mantles. Uh, he was just like those players. And when uh, when I made the team my first year, uh, things were different because I remember Whitey Ford coming up to me saying, hey, Rook, he said, don't send Christmas cards till you're here five years. And so uh, it was, okay, Whitey. So with Thurman, it was like he expected a card from them the first year up. <laughs> But that's just the difference. A little cocky guy, but a gamer. What was the what was the problem while you were with the Yankees? Was was it ma- was it upper management? What you know you, was it players that you didn't go for that you should have gone for? You know to uh, for the Yankees and their perennial winning. You know what were what were the challenges that, that they did that they, they didn't accomplish yeah. while you were there? Yeah, uh, great question, Billy. First of all. I didn't realize what was happening along the times when I was I signed. I signed in 1963. And right along then, uh, Del Webb and Dan Topping decided to get, get out of baseball. But nobody knew it. They didn't tell anybody. They just silently did not hire any high-priced bonus babies anymore. They weren't really into the game like they were before. It was kind of slipping from up, up on top. And uh, then when uh, CBS bought the team, they, they weren't baseball people. You know, they were entertainment people, which baseball is entertainment, but in a far different way. And so we, everybody kind of lost touch with what was happening on, out on the field, which meant that we were getting older, not getting any rookie, not getting any bonus babies anymore, and none of those trades that the Yankees were so used to making with Kansas City and stuff like getting Roger Maris or those 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 weren't happening anymore and so uh, that was the main thing and by the time George Steinberg finally took over uh, and George wasn't a baseball man in those days anyway he, he was a, a a guy who knew what he wanted to do and I think he was the best thing that the Yankees could have ever had happen to them at that time but we had just lost it and it took us through 1966, when we came in last place, to realize, hey, we're in trouble. And, and we couldn't do anything as players. And, and the management, it was too late then. And then we started getting quality ball players that weren't really great. They were just reti- guys who were ready to retire and uh, nice guys, uh, but they, they didn't have it anymore. We didn't have the horses. And uh, Mel and I were the only pitchers for a while. Whitey Ford just burned out, and all the rest of the pitchers were second-line pitchers at that time, until Bonson and, and Steve Klein and people like that. So it was just a meltdown. And by the time we knew it, uh, and, and for sure the Yankees knew it, it was time for George Steinberger to get in and do something about it. Who was your favorite person to uh, get out while they were at bat? Reggie Jackson. <laughs> uh, he was a, a big challenge uh, with that big swim, swing of his, intense ball player. 
and I, I really used to get get him uh, where I wanted him as far as pitch counts and pitch selections. And I used to, I, I remember seeing him shake his head a lot. I, I struck him out 23 times, which was wow. the most I struck anybody out. And, and that, to me, was fun. Any controversy or any uh, in, any uh, uh, talking back and forth with any batters? No. Um, I was real quiet on the mound. People who, who played against me thought I was real serious. Uh, I would just slowly go about and get my job done. I hit 43 batters in my career, and all of them were on purpose, I hate to say. I mean, I love to say. <laughs> all, were, all were on purpose? Yeah. Okay. And uh, I don't remember any that wasn't. Uh, and, and it was the reason was I did have such good control that I, I had to get them back off the plate once in a while, and so they never knew when one was coming. Uh, so uh, I know there was a lot of bad ink about in New York about that about three years ago, <clears throat> but I can't help it. I did it. Who was your Who was your hardest out? Okay, fine. Uh, that guy we never gave up. He went with the pitches. He didn't necessarily pull a ball all the time like most of the right-handers did, but a very intelligent hitter, and and he was he was tough. David Johnson was hard. Don Buford was hard, by, by the way, uh, an unknown guy. Fritz, where did you move on from the Yankees? Where? Yes. Uh, well, we were. I was uh, traded to Cleveland in a four-player trade. Uh, the Yankees giving four, and the Indians getting three, and that was for Chris Shambles, Dick Tidrow, and Cecil Upshaw. Uh, for myself, Steve Klein, Tom Buskey, and Fred Bean. It was a blockbuster. Were you disappointed that you were traded from the Yankees? Yeah, I, I was, even though I knew it, it was going to happen because Gabe, ta- Gabe Paul talked to me about it two weeks earlier. And I said, well, Gabe, I know that I'm going to be traded because we, we don't have room for a fifth starter now, which is what I was that year. And uh, I said, the only places I won't go are to Cleveland or Philadelphia. <laughs> And, uh, and guess what? He said, patted me on the back. He said, don't worry, young man. We wouldn't do that to you. So two weeks later, I was on a plane with three of my teammates heading for Cleveland. What was your stint like in Cleveland? What was it like? Oh, actually, it was really fun. Uh, it, it was no more pressure from New York, the media, that type of thing. But it was like playing Sunday baseball again back in, when you were a kid. Uh, they even cleaned your windshield off when you went to get gas, and just a whole new ball game. And then, how long were you with Cleveland? I was with them two years, and uh, my friend John Ellis talked the uh, owner of the Texas Rangers into trading for me, so I could join him and go play with him in, in Texas. And so I did. And three weeks after I got traded to Texas, my arm fell off, and that was the last game I pitched. So, I mean, not literally. It just uh, felt like uh, after I got done with my start that night, two days later, we usually uh, throw on the side, and my first pitch felt like I had a had a knife right at the top of my shoulder. So that was it. So, when you retired from baseball, was that was that a big part of your life missing? How how did you have to how did you deal with that? Oh, horrible! Uh, I 
Try coming back from that massive operation, that shoulder joint, or uh, no, it was a, a chromionectomy at that time, rotator cuff surgery. And nobody had ever come back from that before. And my doctor said, well, you've got a 50% chance. He, he was overstating it because nobody had ever come back. But I said, without it, what, what are my chances? He said, you have no chances. So I said, let's go. Give me the first appointment you have. So I did it, and I went through it. I, I tried to overcome, uh, I tried to get in shape in like two months after it, which was absurd, because people take an automatic year off now just for that. And I came back, uh, signed with the White Sox, because the Rangers had released me. And uh, I always wanted to be a White Sox, so I was with them. Things were going decent in spring training, and then I got into a game, and I threw to my first hitter, and my arm let go again because it was no longer muscle. Uh, it was uh, tendons and ligaments that don't don't stretch. So I, I threw one pitch to uh, one batter, had to ask Bob Lemon to come out and get me because I couldn't get the next pitch to home plate, and that was it. Shower and over and out. Do you remember your feelings that night? Were you, were you, were you, I mean, did it take, what did it take to get you back up on your feet? Well, um, I had just become a believer uh, in, in the Lord at that time, so I figured that he'd work it all out. And I, it really helped me uh, at the time. You know, I, I feel differently now. Oh, it'd be a long story, but uh, I, I was okay. I, I got, uh, I was actually at peace. And I went back to Barrington, Illinois, where my wife, was, and then I, I worked out with the Cubs and the Sox, trying to see if there was anything left in there. And uh, my arm got worse. I had to go in for emergency surgery again uh, because I had a staph infection in there, and uh, that was really the end. And then I couldn't, I can't lift my arm up over my head to this day. So, what was your thought process? I mean, what what path did you take after baseball? Right. I ended up working for some agents down in Houston, uh, the Hendricks brothers, that turned out to be the best baseball agents there were. And uh, I, I was their first baseball client, but they couldn't do anything for me because my arm had already gone south. But I got them all, all their first guys, mostly from the Indians, and uh, they were tremendous agents, and they became the best. And I, I ended up being a consultant for them for like 10 years. And then... Uh, then we parted ways, and uh, they they sold their business out uh, to a, a larger company. But uh, they still picked the, the, some of their hand-picked players, like Roger Clemens, <laughs> uh, and he was the last player I got for them. But uh, it was fun, good timing. Then I started taking my pension. We've uh, gone month to month for years and years now, and we're we're the book I just finished with when the Yankees. We're on the fritz. Uh, that's helping me out a lot. It's getting a lot of good comments. I'm having fun with people on Facebook with their comments about the book, and it's uh, that that's been a new life for me. It's like being back in baseball, really. Tell us about the book. What was the process in getting the book started? What who gave you kind of okay. a push for it, and and where can we get it? The listeners get it, by the way. Okay. Um, First of all, I, it started out being, uh, I was going to call it Mel and I, being Mel Stottlemyre and I, and because we were so close, and you know now we have similar paths. We both have cancer and different types of cancer, but uh, I was real close with him, and he was my best friend throughout baseball. But then it changed over to uh, 
uh, teammates forever because I, I saw that my teammates were not, not out of my mind. They were just like I was right with them yesterday. And then Marty Appel, a real good writer, from you know, sports writer, said, you know what, why don't you call it when the Yankees were on the fritz? And I said, that's a good idea because I was along with Horace Clark that whole time, and they call that era the Horace Clark era. And in my studies and research, I found out that there was no way we could have won the pennant in any of those years that I was there. And so uh, by studying it, I, I found out why we couldn't do it, and that's what's in the book. It goes from my first day as a Yankee in 1966 to my last day as a Yankee in 1974, before that, that trade. And it, it just kind of picks out some of the players that, that meant something special to me, more some sometimes people nobody ever heard about like Luke Lamboli or Dave Roberts or or people like that and and why they meant something to me and it's a very interesting book and it, it tells about my transition from my first wife to my now wife of 41 years and a little bit about what happened there and there's a movie going to be made out of that uh, by Warner Brothers that'll tell the rest but uh, the book uh, is a fun book and a good read, and, and I, I'm really happy about that. And I'm, I'm working on two more, but uh, it can be gotten on, on my website at fritzpeterson.org or amazon.com, or if uh, somebody wanted to uh, write to me directly, they could uh, do that in P.O. Box 54, I mean, 454, I'm sorry, on Alaska, Wisconsin. Five four six five zero, or go on Facebook. I'm on that. I'm, I'm everywhere right now. I feel like I'm I've got a job again, <laughs> but it's fun. It's a blast. Fritz, while and you were next year, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. I go ahead, go ahead. Next year you were doing what? I'm sorry. Okay, next year this off season, uh, my illustrator Tony Fika and I are going to do a book called Fritz's Fans Forever. And it's going to be about some of these, the things that they write in. I, I never even knew that happened. And I can't remember. People will tell me they were 10 years old underneath the, their dining room table listening to the 20th game in Boston in 1970. And it, it's really been a blast. So we decided we're going to put a book together called that. And it's going to, I think that's going to be a fun one and a funny one. And then I'm going to do one uh, after that called Memories Are Made of This because, again, of the fans, of what they're saying and what they bring up, what thoughts they bring out in me. And it's just like, I've never left this game. And, and my lawyer told me that. He said, if you, if you go on Facebook and do what you're thinking of doing, you're, you're, you're not going to be able to stop. And that's what happened. Yeah, but it's been fun. I've been able to get on shows like yours and some others, and uh, I'm going on another one in two days. Uh, and, and just reliving these days again, it's been a blast. What's the what? What does the movie entail? Are you going to be a part of uh, a part of the movie, as in like a, um, uh, like a, um, a directorial or uh, just input? Or? No, uh, it, it's just going to be a. I'm going to be a consultant. Okay. And uh, I, my guess is it's going to be within two years, um, and, and I hope so because I want to hurry up and see who my new wife is. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and am I mistaken? Is this like a Ben Affleck, Matt Damon? Did they? Did it they, is. It okay. absolutely is. And uh, I think they're going to be co-producers now. They've hired a guy by the name of Jay Roach to be the director, and uh, he's he's pretty active in that in that business right now. And I think it'll be 
he'll come out with a good product. And, and uh, Casey Affleck told me they're they're going to make this a love story, and which it was. And I'm really excited to see it. You, you know, I, you know, I, I I studied up as much as I could when and when researching for you. And and is that something? You know, uh, the swap is that something? You know, I, I I didn't know if I needed to stay away, stay away from, or is that something that you, no. you know? Is that a you know? It was it, it's not negative. It's it's a positive thing. Right. No, it is. And uh, people took it all wrong then because they made it look like something dirty. And, you know, to some people's <laughs> eyes it might be, but it wasn't planned and it wasn't dirty. It wasn't a Bob and Ted and Carol or whatever else it is. I saw that movie last year and that that's, that's dirty. But ours was not. It just happened. And nobody planned it. And we the further we went... Uh, on with this, the, the more every all four of us wanted to be with the other. So it just seemed like a way that everybody could make out, even the kids, it, it, you know, come out better. And uh, it just, it didn't happen that way, not because of Susan and I, we hit it off immediately, and still 41 years later, we're still partying every night. <laughs> Mike and Marilyn didn't end up uh, getting together. I think they were uh, pretty dominant people, and when they were married to us, they they could run us pretty well, but when they got together, it was a heads up. <laughs> but they both ended up marrying nice people. I know them both, and I think they're both happy. So in that regard, I think it worked out fine. The kids probably, uh, some a couple of them probably aren't real happy about it, but you know what? They're in their late 40s now, and uh, they're, they're doing fine. They're good kids. So to that regard, that wasn't a problem either. I mean, it, it, they probably wish it wouldn't have happened, but I don't know how it could not have happened some way. Uh, it, we've just had so much fun, and, and uh, I thank God for my new wife of uh, 41 years. Fritz, during your era in baseball, did Major League Baseball take care of you guys? Did they take, no. a, did they take uh, advantage of you? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, Marty Appel said, and when he was with the Yankees in that capacity, he said he felt sorry for both Mike and I for having to go there alone out on diving boards. Uh, we didn't get help from the from our media or anybody else. We just kind of were out there alone. And uh, to that extent, they they really didn't do anything for us. Uh, and yet, I, I am grateful that I got to play on the Yankees, especially. The other teams I kind of don't even count anymore because the Yankees, to me, are baseball. And uh, I'm glad to see them doing well this year. I don't think anybody expected them to go as far as they have. But I, I think uh, funny that it is that C.C. Sabathia has the number I started with, number 52, and Tanaka has 19, the one I ended with. So maybe that's a good omen. <laughs> what... Um... Um, I appreciate you spending time with us today. I mean, it, it, I mean, I feel like I can uh, say the Lou Gehrig quote of today. I feel like the luckiest man on the face of the earth because I got to talk to one of the one of my idols when I, I was a kid. So uh, I thank you so much for your time and just let everybody know again uh, the name of your book and where they can get it. Okay, it's called When the Yankees Were on the Fritz. They can get it on my website at fritzpeterson.org or Amazon's got it. Or uh, they could write me direct at P.O. Box 454 on Alaska, Wisconsin, 54650. 
And if you want to buy the book, uh, put a money order in there for $23, and I'll send you the book and, and personalize it to you. Okay? Fritz, did you did you keep any of your um, uniforms or anything like that through the years? I did. Um, I ended up giving my sons, I had two sons, I uh, gave one of them my last uniform that I ever played in. Uh, that was in Yankee Stadium. And then I gave the other one the uniform, the gray uniform that I won my 20th game in, the one in Boston in 1970. So I'm not much of a memorabilia guy. Uh, the only thing I do have, I have two things left. My black stool from inside the clubhouse, which Babe Ruth may have probably did sit on. Uh, and I have uh, my, my last glove that Rawlings gave me to try out as an experimental glove. Uh, it was illegal. It was a half inch too long. But I still have it hanging in my closet, and I think it's turned to wood. <laughs> Fritz Peterson, Fritz Peterson, thank you so much for helping us keep the nostalgia alive and uh, uh, joining us on the program. I know you're a busy person. I thank you so much. Thanks, Billy. Anytime, buddy. Have a great day.